Good morning and welcome to Christ Community, our Olathe campus. Uh, my name is Chris. I have the privilege of being the student ministry pastor here this morning. Before we get started, if you are uh, a child or just an adult who maybe needs help following along, we have this thing called the Kid Connect in the back. would love for you to grab this. It's, we make it as a resource so that kids can be engaged with what we're doing in the service. And kids, there's even some questions here. We want you to ask your parents in the car on the way home. You can treat it as a quiz to make sure they were listening. All right. And there's some stuff on here. If you show, uh, come and show one of the pastors after the, church, after the service that you did the sheet, we'll hook you up with some candy afterwards. So what's not to love about that? They're in the back. Um, this morning, we're in the fifth week of our Deliver Us sermon, going through the book of Exodus. This morning, we're looking at chapter 16, and we're looking at manna from heaven. So deliver us through bread. Before we begin, let's just bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. Um, we thank you for the rain that you gave. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for who you have been, as we'll see you in uh, your word this morning. And we thank you in advance for who you will always continue to be. Father, I pray that the uh, words that I share this morning are your words, um, not my own. I ask that uh, people's hearts and minds will be open to how you want to move amongst them and in them, how you want to form us uh, into the people that you have created us always to be. Lord, we ask that this morning uh, we'll bring glory and praise to you and we'll bind us together as your people. In your name we pray, amen. Before we get started this morning, I want to have us watch uh, a short video and ask yourself, when's the last time you felt like this? Can we turn the AC up? I'm dying back here. It's on. Can't you feel it? Can you feel that? Oh. <laughs> Jeff, eat a Snickers, please. Why? Every time you get hungry, you turn into a diva. Just eat it so Ooh, we can all coexist. Turn into in a diva. Mm -hmm. Put it in your system, cranky pants. Okay. Thank you. Better? Better. Will you get your knees out of the back of my seat? <laughs> you're not you when you're hungry. Snickers satisfies. Weird things happen when you get hungry, don't they? Anyone need to get up and go get some donut holes quick before we start? I think hunger during a sermon is a pretty good recipe for turning into a diva, right? So hopefully that won't happen to too many of you this morning or to me. But seriously, when is the last time you've been so hungry it makes you hangry? You know where hunger and anger intersect and you get hangry? I'm, I'm wondering if maybe if you're answering that question in your head right now, maybe your spouse or your parent is probably going to say it was more recent than you, the answer that you want to give. Maybe it's happened recently. Kids, hopefully you're not starving right now. Did you eat a decent breakfast before you came to church or did you have trouble getting out of bed? Um, we all know how it feels, right? One moment you're fine and the next moment... That feeling in your stomach turns you into a sniveling, whining crybaby, right? You're hungry, and you'll do anything to make that feeling go away. And you, up in a, you end up in a place where you either regret your behavior afterwards, or you make some pretty poor eating decisions, right? Things that never looked appetizing suddenly look really good, don't they, Right? Earlier this week, I rode my bike home, as I, as I usually do, but on Monday, I didn't eat a great lunch that day. I think I had a bowl of oatmeal. Ooh. Supposed to be healthy for you. Apparently, it wasn't enough, though. 
I felt fine when I left, and about halfway home, I fell apart. Even going down hills was hard work. I felt gross. I had no energy at all. I could barely walk up the stairs to get into the house, and I was late for dinner, and it was sitting there on the table. I didn't even have enough energy to eat. My body just, it, it ran out of energy and didn't want to work properly. And that's sometimes what, what happens when we get hungry. When somebody else that gets hangry, though, it's pathetic and annoying, isn't it? Yeah, you're like, grow up. When it's you, though, it feels legitimate, doesn't it? And actually, there's some science behind it that it maybe some of it is legitimate because when you get that hungry and your blood sugar gets too low, you're, you start to get messages sent to the hunger center in your brain and the hypothalamus that says your body is in trouble and it needs sugar because your brain relies on sugar to function properly. Hopefully the kids aren't like, I'm going to use that one next time. I want some candy, right? But your brain does need sugar to function properly, glucose. And so your, your, your blood sugar levels start to get low and it gets harder to concentrate. It gets harder to perform simple tasks and it can also make it harder to behave within socially acceptable norms. So you start to snap at people, insults flow a little bit more freely and you become a little bit more self-centered than normal. Hopefully you're not sitting next to somebody right now and you're not thinking, oh, you're just hangry all of the time, right? But, but this, psych, this physiological reality also can't help but reveal our spirituality. When you're really hungry, it gets more difficult to hide and conceal who you really are from other people. Our physical hungers often reveal the conditions of our heart. We get hungry for food, the feelings that lie buried in our heart rise to the surface. We've all been there, right? Hopefully you're not right there right now. If you are, feel free to go get some coffee and donuts. We'll watch you go and we won't judge too much, right? We've all been there. And Israel was there. In the story that, the, that, we're reading, that we just heard this morning, they've just been freed from slavery and now they're in the wilderness. They have their first real taste of freedom in centuries. But you can't shake 400 years of slavery overnight. Israel's out of Egypt, but their problems are just beginning, aren't they? God got them out of slavery, but getting the slavery out of them is going to be a little bit more challenging. Because as hard as an, and, and oppressive as the Egyptians were on the Israelites for 400 years, the Israelites' real problem wasn't the Egyptians. It was their hearts. This is the first story in Exodus that we've come through so far in this series where the enemy is not an external one for the Israelites. It's an internal one. And the whole rest of the book of Exodus, as we continue to go through in the rest of this series, is ultimately a story about those internal enemies and our internal enemies. The rest of this book hammers home the idea that the problem is not our circumstances. It's what's in our hearts. And in this story, the real problem is not a lack of bread 
for the Israelites. The real problem is a lack of trust. To be clear, bread is important, isn't it? In fact, it's really important. But it's not more important than trusting God. Bread can't free you. Only God can free you. We don't need more bread first. We need more God first. So after 400 years of slavery to the Egyptians, it's going to take some desperate measures to get the slavery out of the hearts of the Israelites. And the Israelites have already seen some pretty desperate situations, haven't they? They've witnessed the plagues and gained their freedom. And they've been sent packing by the Egyptians with plenty of gold and silver and clothing. And then the road trip that feels like it's never going to end begins. And so they leave Egypt, and we've got a map, and they start going south. And you can see Mara there, which we'll talk about in a minute. And the passage that Patrick read says, says that they get to Elam, and they're headed south down the Sinai Peninsula. I don't think you have to be an enslaved Israelite for 400 years to know that maybe you're headed in the wrong direction, right? I wonder if the Israelites are thinking, uh, hey, Moses, big cloud, promised land, north maybe might be a good idea. It kind of reminds me of those times when I I'm pretty sure I know where I'm going, but I really have no idea where I'm going. But I've already committed to the idea of knowing where I'm going, so I can't admit to anyone in the car that I really don't have any idea where I'm going, right? Hopefully there's not too many wives that are elbowing husbands right now and saying, yeah, yesterday or most of the time when we're in the car, right? But that might be what it's like for the Israelites right now as they're headed south. They're like, we've just gained our freedom. Aren't we supposed to be going to the promised land? Israel's free, but they're not headed home yet. And they start to wonder if they're headed towards another dead end, just like the Red Sea. They've just been delivered from Pharaoh at the Red Sea. And they're in their third day of a road trip. And in Exodus 15, it says that, they, that they're out of water. They're out of fresh water to drink. And the only water that they have access to is bitter. And that's at uh, where it says Mara on the map. And it's, it's not coincidental that it's called Mara because Mara is translated to bitter, we're told. And the only water that they're to drink is bitter. And Israel starts to grumble. They haven't had fresh water to drink in more than three days. Anybody here ever gone three days without water? No, who are we kidding, Right? Who of us has gone three hours without water? Probably not. Most of us probably have a fridge that has that little thing where it dispenses ice-cold water, and if it's not cold enough, then you have another thing that dispenses a selection of crushed ice, right? Cubed or the big brick or some sculpture or crushed or whatever. We have no concept of this kind of reality, do we? And yet I looked up this online this week, 783 million people in the world today don't have access to clean water. 2.5 billion people today don't have access to clean sanitation. What the Israelites were facing all those years ago is still a really present reality for a lot of the world's population today. And we have no concept of that. And so Israel grumbles. They don't have water. Just as I'm sure I would, or just as I'm sure you would, if we didn't have any water to drink and we were thirsty and we were in the desert, and it had been three days since we had had a good drink. 
The human body cannot go more than three days without water before it begins to fail. And so God says to Moses, okay, I got this. Take a log and throw it in the water. And the water becomes sweet to drink. And God doesn't just give Israel fresh, sweet water to drink. In Exodus 15, verse 26, 26, Moses tells them, if you diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. So the Israelites set out again. Water jugs full, and they get to their next stop. The map said they went farther down south towards Elam. They arrive there, and they don't have food. And they're hungry. And then they get hangry. And they start to grumble and complain against Moses, saying it would have been better if we had died in, G- in Egypt, where at least we had meat pots and bread to eat as much as we wanted. And at the heart of this grumbling is not just a complaint against Moses and Aaron, it's a complaint against God, which is rooted in a belief that when faced with difficulties, God is insufficient. But let's face it, the Israelites needed food, didn't they? Israel wants bread. Israel wants bread. They're starving. They're in, the kind, they're in the middle of the desert and the stones are starting to look tasty starving. And you've been there. The kind of hungry where you go into the office refrigerator and you start looking around for something to eat because you didn't bring lunch to work. And you see that Tupperware thing full of pasta that's been there for probably a week. And then you start looking around to see if nobody's coming into the, in, into, the, into the kitchen and you look down the hall and no one's coming and you grab that Tupperware full of somebody else's spaghetti and you start to eat it. And then you realize why it's been there for more than a week. And you eat it anyways. You're that hungry. The Israelites aren't just complaining. They're saying, Moses, what am I supposed to tell my kids when they say they're too hungry to keep walking? The Israelites are so hungry that they forget everything they've been shown in the past few weeks. They forget the plagues they've witnessed. They forget the first Passover and their arms laden with gold and silver and clothing as they leave Egypt. They forget the joy they experienced when they tasted freedom for the first time. They forget the terror and then the joy that followed when they see Pharaoh drowning in the Red Sea after it's been parted and they escape. They forget Moses' song of praise afterwards. They forget that just days before God turned bitter water sweet. They forget that God had promised to be their healer. All they can do is think about their hunger. And they begin to think that the easiest way to fill their bellies is to return to Egypt. Yeah, sure, the work was backbreaking. Yeah, sure, we never had a day off ever. Yeah, sure, my kids had to start collecting straw not long after they learned to walk just so I could make my quota. But at least we had meat pots and as much bread as we wanted to eat at the end of the day. Because when you're hungry and your child is crying to be fed, you'll do anything, won't you? Including go back into slavery. When all you want is bread, 
You'll sacrifice your soul and your freedom to satisfy those hungers. And not only that, you'll tell yourself all kinds of stories and you'll reinterpret your understanding of reality and rationalize it 20 different ways in order for it to make sense to you. And I'm Israel. I'm pretty sure you're Israel as well. I have deep hungers that I try and feed. My hunger for acceptance. My hunger for respect. Those are the two hungers that I feel comfortable telling you about. Never mind the other ones. And over and over, I think and I try to find the best way that I know possible to feed those hungers. And often it returns a return to my, involves a return to my Egypt. And to be respected and to be accepted, those aren't bad things. In fact, I think we need them. And God wants them for us. Just like the Israelites needed bread, they needed food. As much as I need acceptance and I need respect, as much as you think you need what you need, as much as Israel needed bread, Israel needs God more. Israel complained to Moses and Aaron when they had more than ample evidence that he would provide. And God still shows them grace. He still shows them his provision. God says, you want bread? I'll give you bread. It's going to rain bread in the morning. And in the evening, I'm going to give you all the meat that you need in the form of quail. In chapter 16, verse 10, it says, They looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And when they woke up, the ground was covered. The people walk out of their tents, not sure of what they're seeing. And this passage said it was called manna, which is literally translated to what is it? They didn't know what to call it, so they called it, what is it? Kids, have you ever woken up in the morning and you smell something good while you're laying in bed coming from the kitchen and you're not sure what it is, so you go and find out? Pretty sure that's the kind of feeling and sensation Israel was having when they got up that first morning. Knowing something good had happened, but not quite sure what it was. And what it was was bread from heaven. In the mornings after the dew would evaporate, it apparently would leave like, almost like a frost-like substance on the ground. Which was like, and took the form of like a thin wafer. Verse 31 says it was like white coriander seed and it tasted like honey. And says that each day they were to gather one omer, which is, I guess, the equivalent of two quarts, so about the size of a two-liter uh, pot bottle. But if they gathered too much each day, it would rot and it would become infested with worms or maggots. And the same thing would happen in the evening with quail. Quail would come, there would be meat. And this is what God provided them for 40 years in the desert every day. Now think of the downside of that for a second. 40 years eating the same meal every single day. Really? You're making the same thing again? Well, come on, it's all that God's given us, right? You think the chefs and cooks in Israel ever had like competitions to see like who could come up with new ways to cook manna and quail? Give away prizes for it or something like that? 
some like reality show about cooking, how old do you think that would get? Same thing over and over. And yet the upside, think about that. 14,600 days of regular provision from God. Every day God provided for him. Just think about that for a second. If you're under the age of 40, and I'm going to assume everybody here is, right? If you're under the age of 40, that's like never, ever, ever paying anything for groceries your entire life. Never having to wonder or think or stress out about what you're going to have to make for the next meal. Why did God provide them for that, provide for them in that way? It says it was a test for the Israelites. They're in the desert and there is no food available. So he's going to provide just enough for them every single day. Every day they were given evidence and a reminder that they wanted bread first when they should have wanted him first. God isn't saying there's anything wrong with wanting bread. But he is telling us and reminding us that there is when you want it more than you want him. Because a life with God should reorder our loves. Him first, everything else second. And when we want something more than God, that's idolatry. So every day for 40 years, they were given a reminder and an opportunity to remember what and who they needed first. Because just one chapter before this, Moses was leading the whole nation in a praise party. And they were singing, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. They were praising God and claiming him for their salvation until their stomachs started to feel empty. And if they were having a hard time believing that God was going to be their rock, their strength, their song, their sufficiency, their salvation in the wilderness, how were they going to remember and believe these things when they got to the promised land? The land that was called the land of milk and honey because it was so bountiful and so full of resources. How were they going to remember that when they had everything they ever needed? And before we shake our heads at the Israelites and think, ugh, what a bunch of idiots. We have to ask ourselves the same question. Much has changed in the last 4,000 years, but much has stayed the same. Do we, really run the, do, do we daily run the risk of worshiping the land that we live in? Worshiping its fruit and its freedoms rather than first worshiping the giver of it all? I know I do. Are our loves out of order? Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 10 that this story, this specific story of the manna in the desert serves as a reminder as followers of Christ that we are not to be idolaters. That we should not worship things in place of God. And so if this specific story that Paul singles out is to be a reminder for us today, what can we learn from this story? 
Israel wanted bread. It was all that they could think of. And it made them forget God's provision just in the previous weeks, just before this. Bread became their number one priority. So what we can learn is if all we want is bread, we'll never be satisfied. If all you want is bread, you will never be satisfied. God gave them bread. He gave it to them every day for 14,600 days. And he even told them, I'm going to give you just enough every day. Don't collect more than you need because there'll be more tomorrow. And he also said, for the first time in 400 years, I'm going to give you a day off. And not just a day off, the day before your day off, I'm going to give you enough that you can collect for the next two days and it will remain good for those two days. And yet that wasn't enough for Israel. The first Sabbath comes along, the first day, and they want bread so badly that they leave their tents and they go in search of the bread and they don't find anything. How much is enough? In this chapter, not once does the author uh, document a word of thanks from the Israelites to God for his provision. All they wanted was bread. And it's a pattern. It's a pattern for us as well. A relentless pursuit of what we think pleases us, of what we think will make us happy, actually makes it more difficult for us to experience pleasure in anything else. I read a book a a little while ago called Thrilled to Death, How the Endless Pursuit of Pleasure is Leaving Us Numb by Dr. Archibald Hart. And he writes, an excessive pursuit of pleasure takes over and hijacks the brain's pleasure system. In a real sense, we've lost our pleasure by becoming addicted to pleasure that is outside the box of normal existence. To use metaphoric language, and a hedonia is not having anything in your life that can move your heart. And I know I'm at risk for this. Bread is what Israel thought would give them satisfaction and pleasure when it should have been God. They were focused solely on feeding and nourishing their body and missed out on the fact that they needed to try and nourish their souls. Not gathering bread, resting on the Sabbath, trusting in God and his provision was the way that that was going to happen. And they blew it. They were slaves again. They They were back to working seven days a week for their bread. And when all you want is bread, you will never be satisfied. There'll never be enough bread. And the more you get, the less it satisfies. In fact, you end up becoming immune to its goodness. And then you begin to look for the next thing that will satisfy you in the way that bread once did. So God's solution, his solution for the Israelites and his solution for us is to rest, is to Sabbath. Dallas Willard in his book, The Great Omission, wrote, Sabbath is a way of life. It is simply casting all your anxiety on him to find that in actual fact he cares for you. It is using the keys to the kingdom to receive the resources for abundant living and ministering. Our willingness to rest is a sign to God and a sign to others that we recognize that bread will never feed our deepest hungers. Rest is a way of making ourselves available to God to him, for him to pour into us what we truly need, what will truly satisfy. And the rest will help me know which areas in my life I consistently and continually go out and trying to gather bread for myself. 
and, er- and those same areas which I consistently and continually come back empty-handed and unsatisfied? Is it power, respect, admiration, control, influence? The list is endless of things that I try and seek to, to, to satisfy my hungers. What's on your list? And in our rest, we're admitting that these things, these things that I just listed, and, and many more, in our rest admitting these things, bread will never satisfy, and that only God can satisfy our deepest hungers. And this, this rest allows us also to desire more of God. And if all we want is God, there will always be enough bread. If all we want is God, there will always be enough bread. In this story, we see that God is a God of provision. The Israelites are in the middle of the desert, the middle of nowhere. There's nowhere to get food, and there's nowhere to grow food. And he provides. Miraculously and daily, he provides. No matter what the circumstances, God shows that he will provide. And everyone had enough. In verse 16, later in the passage, it says, Gather of it each of you as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer or two quarts according to the number of the persons each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, he who get, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever, whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he or she could eat. There's enough for everybody, depending on their need, regardless of the family size, whether it was a family with no kids or 12 kids, whether it was a person with a massive appetite or someone who looked at food and felt full. Regardless of family size, regardless of body size, regardless of metabolism, in the wilderness where there was no bread apart from, apart from God and who he was, everyone ate their fill. Everyone had enough. Regardless of the circumstances, satisfaction and delight can be found in the presence of God and in his provision. It may not always look the way that we expect, anticipate, or prefer. I'm pretty sure the Israelites didn't expect to be provided for in this way. Their, their plan was going back to Israel or back to Egypt to eat their fill. Five years ago, my family and I expected provision in, in kind of the same way. We were living in London, and all of a sudden, we, were, we realized we were, we were being forced to leave our home. We were given three days' notice because I was told our visas would get renewed, and then three days before they expired, I was told by my supervisor, oh yeah, sorry, that didn't work out. You're going to have to leave and go back to the States until we get this figured out. What we thought would be a couple weeks' absence from our home turned into a couple of months, a few months. We stayed with family in Chicago um, with no money and no health insurance and no certainty, uh, my family of four living in one small bedroom together. And to top it off, I got pneumonia. Mm, Fun. And we had no idea what the plan was. We had no idea what God's provision was. And a lot of times, honestly, he felt extremely distant and silent. 
Every day we, pr we, we prayed to him, wondering what the plan was, if we were going back or if we should be looking for something else. I looked for all kinds of work during that time when I finally realized we weren't going back, and I looked for a lot of non-church jobs. And no doors open. So I started looking for work with uh, another church here in the state. And through God's provision, I got an invitation to come to Olathe, Kansas. <laughs> I was like, what? My wife is like, where's Olathe? I'm like, I don't even know how to pronounce the place. And we're like, Kansas? Really? Barbecue? Eh. I'm like, I grew up a Broncos fan. Don't hold it against me. Now I'm just blissfully indifferent to every NFL team, all right? So I'm kind of like Switzerland. We didn't know. Kansas was honestly the last place we had any interest in coming. But I needed a job. And I needed a God who would provide. And he has. It's a little surprising how much we, I'm trying not to like lose it right now. It's a little surprising how much we love it here. And a big part of that has to do with this church. God provided significantly. He invited us to trust him. Some days it's still really hard. And maybe here, you're here today because God feels distant from you as well. Maybe you feel like you're in the desert and your soul is hungry. The good news is, is you don't have to go back to Egypt to feed your hunger. It might feel easy or easier because at least then you have some control. But that satisfaction that you might feel in those moments is fleeting and it's deceiving and it will leave you hungry again. And there's only one thing and one person who can satisfy your deepest hungers in a way that is meaningful and lasting and in a way that allows you to become the person that you were always created to be, to be God's child, to be his beloved. Because when we seek God and we stumble into his presence, we discover, we, we, we find out that his provision and his protection are there also. And so the question I have to ask myself every day and that you must ask yourself and that we as a church must ask ourselves is, am I seeking God's presence or am I seeking his provision? We have to remember when we seek one, we get the other. When we seek his presence, we get his provision. Do you want bread or God more? Because if we want God more, we'll always have enough bread. And we can begin to have enough bread by thanking Him for the bread that we have. By thanking God for what we do have. It's noticeable that Israel never thanks God for this provision in chapter 16. They can't seem to get enough bread. They collect more than they need and it goes rotten. Do I have so much that it limits my ability to see God's provision? Do we have so much that it's going rotten and it only makes us want more? Perhaps part of the solution is, is for us to live intentionally with a little bit less, thanking him for what we do have. 
Because when we thank God for what we have, thank him daily and regularly, we can see the beauty in what we have. We can see his provision. More importantly, I love what Ann Voskamp says in her book, Thousand Gifts. And if you haven't read it, you should read this book. She writes, when I give thanks for the seemingly microscopic, I make a place for God to grow within me. And thanksgiving, giving thanks in everything, prepares that way that God might show us his fullest salvation in Christ. And we can know this because we know how this story goes, don't we? We know from reading this story and the rest of God's word that he made himself completely available to us. We know this because Jesus became the bread you've always needed. Jesus became the bread you've always needed. For 40 years, Israel wandered in the desert with God getting the slavery out of them. And not a single adult who left Egypt ended up making it to the promised land, but at least they didn't die slaves. And when they got to the promised land, they want more land and they want more wealth, and God gives it to them. And when they have more land and they want more wealth, they want what every other nation around them wants. They want a king, and God gives it to them. They keep wanting something other than the one thing that gives them everything. They ignore the one who can satisfy their hunger in search of other things until Jesus comes. And God doesn't just provide for them. He comes and dwells among them. He takes on flesh and he heals their hurts. He cures their diseases. He takes away their blindness and he feeds their hungry and there's an abundance left over, 12 baskets. And when that's not enough, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. When we're looking elsewhere for bread to feed our souls and satisfies our hungers, God comes and dwells among us, becoming the bread we never knew we wanted and the bread we never knew that we needed. So we must remember We must remember that all through history, God has provided for us. And that through his son, Jesus, he made the ultimate provision. A provision that satisfies the needs and the hungers of our souls. Will you taste and see that the Lord is good? Or will I continue to make bread my God? Will you continue to turn to things that you know will not and cannot satisfy? You're his beloved. He will do anything and has already done everything to feed your soul. Remember his provision. Remember his sacrifice. So this morning is a way of remembering his provision and his sacrifice. As a church, we're going to join together in communion. Because before Jesus went went to the cross and made the ultimate provision for us. He provided his followers a meal, the good news of Jesus Christ, that speaks to our sense of taste and touch and smell. With bread broken, we remember Christ's body broken for us on the cross, and through the drink, we can remember his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're new to Christ's community and would like to join, 
of his in communion. Let me explain how we go about this. You don't have to be a member of our church in order to participate. If you're a follower of Christ and you have put your trust solely in him, or trying to, you're welcome to join in this meal of remembrance with us. Uh, we have four stations, two on the back wall and two at the front. We have a gluten-free station up front here on your left if you need that. And there's no communion servers this morning. So take your time, and when you're ready, you can come and remember. Before we come, let us remember these words. For the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This, is the cu- this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For, oft- for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so when you're ready, please come and remember his provision and remember his sacrifice.